You're listening to Apolitical Politics, where we discuss the ins and outs of Oregon politics without being political. I'm your host, Dwayne Stark. Today's special guest is Oregon Congressman Cliff Benz from Oregon Congressional District 2. Well, thank you for being on today, Cliff. How are you? Well, well, I'm good, Dwayne. I'm very, very happy to be joining you today. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys are busy there in D.C., and I know a little bit about you because I spent some time with you in the House and then watched you in the Senate in Oregon, and now you're off to D.C. So want to learn a little bit about the differences between the state and federal roles. But before we do, will you give me some of your background? Who are you? How did you end up where you're at? And what's your journey been like? Well, I was uh, raised over in eastern Oregon on a series of different cattle ranches, my granddad owned a ranch down near Nevada, but still barely in Oregon. And um, then we moved from there when that was sold up to a series of other ranches put together as a bigger one up not far out of Burns. So I grew up uh, riding riding horses. We each each of us I had I had five little brothers and one older sister, and uh, we each uh, we each had three or four horses of of ours. We called them ours, but they really belonged to the ranch. And so we we grew up doing a lot of horseback work with cattle and then uh, a lot of just plain old hard work putting up hay and building fence and helping helping build the ranches back up into one one operating economic unit and i went away to uh, high school when i was 14 they dad decided to send us to a catholic high school up in there's just a just out of salem about 15 miles uh, and get to live with an aunt and uncle and that was kind of different moving away from home when you're 14 i wouldn't recommend it but it uh, turned out fine and then went on to uh, Eastern Oregon State College then, now university, and then on to law school and then back to practice law in Ontario, Oregon for 30 years and then into the Oregon House 10 years, the Senate two years, and now here in Congress for approaching two years. So uh, lots of uh, lots of political effort, but not until I worked in the private sector long enough to earn enough to be able to do this job because even in Congress, you do not make any money. And, and by the way, Dwayne, you know this better than anybody, that in the legislature, uh, what they pay you is fairly modest. But it's such, a, it's such a privilege, you know, it's such a privilege to be in the legislature now in Congress. I don't think much of us, because I don't think we complain about it much. And um, I'm, I'm very, very happy to have the opportunity to, to represent the folks of uh, District 2. I think I definitely would make more money building fences than working as a state representative. <laughs> And, you know, you mentioned that, and I have to tell you, I actually have a great appreciation for that because I am all sliced up because I spent the morning trying to rerun barbed wire on some fences. So it seems like a farmer's fence is never fixed. But that's not why we're here. I could talk about that forever. Uh, Okay, so moving forward, as we go along, if there are some things that, you know, that I'm missing because I have not been at the federal level, so if there are things that I should ask you, by all means, you know, take this conversation wherever you want it to go. But the first thing that I know is obviously different between the state and the federal level are sessions. In Oregon, we have session annually, odd numbered years. We have roughly a five to six month session, even numbered years. It's, you know, a 30 day session, 35 day session. And so I'm in, I have that built into my head about what is a session, that season that lawmakers get together and pass bills and make laws. Can you tell me what is session like at the federal level? How is that different or how is that alike compared to the state level? 
Well, the a session here in Congress is two years, and so we're we're in the 117th Congress right now, and it began when I was elected or was sworn in on January 3rd of last year, and we'll run up to January basically 3rd of, of next year, and then we'll start the 118th Congress. And so the session is is for that period of time. The actual days that you're in Washington, D.C. voting, uh, that that is um, dependent upon the Speaker of the House on the House side and, and to the, the the majority leader on the Senate side. And so Schumer, Chuck Schumer is in charge on the on the Senate side and and uh, Nancy Pelosi on the on the House side. So the action of the calendar that's put together for for the first first year of the session is is a product of the majority party and 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 likewise for the second year. So that's since I've been here, of course, it's all been about Nancy Pelosi because she's she's speaker and she's in charge. So the but the session is two years. As that leadership changes, is there any sort of predictable schedule for session? You know, where you expect you know, November's off for the holiday season, or is it pretty much you guys are at the beck and call all the time? You're at the beck and call all the time. There are certain normal approaches, for example. You're supposed to get August off. That has not happened since I've been here. My two Augusts have both been interrupted by by trips back to D.C., and so it's very difficult to plan much of anything. Usually, in an election year such as this one, you get October off in the first you know week before the and the and the week after election day off. That's so you can run for office. It doesn't have too much to do with holidays. In the normal course of events, uh, you you get some time off for Christmas and some time off for Easter and spring break. But there is nothing. Nothing is guaranteed. Like nothing. So, uh, and I'm I'm okay with that. It's just that if you have kids in school and all of that, it puts a terrific burden on the spouse that stays home because uh, there's no there's no guarantee of when you're going to be there. How often do you get to come back home? Well, you can, many people go back home just like in Salem. They go back home every every night because they live real close. And uh, many people live on the East Coast. And as you know, the East Coast is extraordinarily close to Washington, D.C., so they can get on a train and zip up to Baltimore or on up the coast of New York um, or down down to into, into Virginia and, and south. Those of us who live on the West Coast or Hawaii and Alaska, that's quite a bit. That's a different deal. Uh, a round trip for me is 5,600 miles. And so uh, that's about it's, – it's usually about 14 hours, not of flying, but of getting to the airport and waiting and then flying. A direct flight to Portland from here takes about four hours and 20 minutes going west. Yeah, if if everything is just exactly right and the wind's not blowing at the you know thirty forty thousand foot level, I think that can take you five hours uh, to get there. I don't fly that way because I live on the eastern edge of Oregon and thus I fly into Boise, Idaho, and that's a two leg journey one 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 leg up to Minneapolis uh, and then another leg uh, to Boise. But it's hard it's hard to go home when you have to fly fifty you know fifty six hundred miles round trip. You're not going to do it. So I'm I'm here. Uh, generally for a month at a time, and then go home. Yeah, that makes my three-and-a-half-hour drive back and forth from southern Oregon to Salem seem a little more mild. 
<laughs> well, it depends yeah. on how often you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's right. You know, I've generally done that every every single weekend. Okay, so session for you guys, roughly two years. Session in Oregon would be, you know, six to seven months over the course of a two-year span between the two sessions. In Oregon, it's not uncommon that we would pass anywhere between the two, the long and the short session, that we might pass 900 to 1,100 new laws in that amount of time. So how about at the congressional level? I mean, how, how many bills are you guys dealing with on the floor? Or, you know, actually, that's, yeah, as, as an entire entity, how many do you actually pass out of the building in a two-year span? I, I think the numbers are going to be bigger than what Oregon does by, by a lot. But, the, but when I say that, <clears throat> passing the bills through the House is one thing, but getting them through the Senate and across the president's desk is, is quite another. And so there's a, there's a wild variation depending upon which party uh, is in power. If you have all the Democrats in power, as now is the case at all three levels, the president, the Senate, and the House, you're going to see a higher volume of bills going all the way through. But, it's, but nothing is normal ever around here, as near as I can tell. And that's because even though the Democrats control those three branches of government, they do not, uh, they don't control it by much. <laughs> so the, the fact that the, the Senate is still subject to the filibuster or so-called cloture rules, which means you have to have an additional 10 votes in addition to the, the, the 51, you, you really need, you know, 60, 61 votes. And if you don't get them, it's not going to pass because cloture rules come into play. And that means that that uh, the minority has more power and can stop many of the really bad bills. And there have been a lot of them doing a lot. And so that has acted as a break on the, the number of bills that are going through. I was getting my staff. Uh, I have asked for, to get the number of bills that have actually made their way all the way through so far and been signed by the president. And I hope to have that number for you here in a few minutes. I'm, I'm going to tell you it's, it's, it's going to be a modest number. Uh, you know, there's, there's certain bills renaming a post office, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing, you know, a, a federal highway. Those kind of bills, fine. But the great big bills, very few. I know that I've always told people that the media tends to only cover what the two parties fight about. And in Oregon, you know, it's not uncommon that in a given session, 85% of the time, bills are bipartisan and may have close to unanimous support through the building. What's that look like in Congress? Is it just a handful that we see in the newspapers that people are fighting on and there's all sorts of stuff that's passing on a regular basis that we never hear about that's bipartisan? Or is it all partisan? What's it look like? Well, you are... Absolutely. It's just the same. We have about 60% of the bills that come across the floor get passed and about 40% not so much. And of that 60%, most of them are, are everybody or most everybody agrees upon. I mean, you're just like the Oregon legislature, you're, you're going to always have some people that are going to vote against every, everything. They just, they're always enough. Um, and um, that kind of makes it, you can't really say there's, unanimity at any any level but about 60 percent of the votes uh, that uh, or bills that come up uh, actually make their way across the floor of the house 
uh, how many get through the Senate? Uh, I, I hope to have some number for you here soon, but it, again, the, the, the variation is considerable. But you're right. The bills that get all of the ink are few, and, and the bills and the hard work of getting everything done around here are many and, and most of the time ignored. I, I will tell you that it's often said that, that the House only has to pass 12 bills, and those are all the appropriation bills. And, and um, if you get those 12 bills passed, then you can all go home. So it's it's uh, uh, we had about my staff just handed me the numbers here, 10,000 bills introduced, and about 175 passed the entire Congress. Wow, that's in a two-year span. Yes, uh, that, <laughs> that's pretty astonishing. I would have thought that that number was a lot higher. Well, you're not lucky as not. <laughs> you're impressive. Yes, lucky as not. <laughs> as a limited government guy, I appreciate that it's not. So I do appreciate <laughs> that. Okay, let's talk about passing bills or amending bills. And we don't need to get into the exact bill, but some years back, there's an infamous bill that has gone down in history that you have to pass it to see what's in it. And I was dumbfounded when I found out that at the federal level, you can amend a bill on the floor. So for someone who's new to all of this, I know you know this, having been at the state level, but at the state level, two days before a bill ever lands on the floor is the last time it could be amended in committee. And so we always know what's in a bill when it comes to the floor. Once it hits the floor in Oregon, there's, there is no change in it. Once it goes to the other side of the building, they can change it, but there's no change in it on the fly. Now, that's different at the federal level, right? Yes, uh, it, it's different. I'll just tell you that uh, it, it's quite complicated. And the, the number of times that I've seen an amendment on the floor, I'm going to say I can list on one hand since I've been here. I, I can't even remember when we last did it. But you you can do it, but it's... Uh, you, you have to be on the floor when the clerk reads uh, to the point uh, of the bill that of which amendments in, in order, and then you have to make your motion and so forth. But let me just let me just share with you this: the biggest difference that I've seen here is what we is in rules. And you know we have a rules committee, of course, in Salem, but it's not like here because the rules committee here writes a rule on each bill. So each bill that comes through has its own rule, and that means its own set of steps that you're going to follow in managing the, the bill across the floor. And that and that rule is a crazy that a crazy device because you can write into the rule a series of assumptions that you would that, that are crazy. I mean, you you honestly can write rules that completely change the approach that you would think is normal. So there's great power in the rules committee because you can do so many things. I wish I was on rules. I'll, I'll be honest with you <laughs> because I think that's a point uh, of, of true, true, true power. But I'm not. And and and, and I, even if I was now, it wouldn't matter because we wouldn't have the votes to, to do anything. But um, it, it kind of modifies everything. But this gets to the amendment. If you want to write a rule that says the bill isn't going to be amended, that's called a closed rule, and you're, you're out of luck. 
if you want to write a rule that says it's open to amendment, well, you can write it, you can leave it open to amendment. Well, most of the time, it's not going to be open to amendment. Uh, certain amendments may be brought to the floor to be voted upon, but they're not made on the floor. They're made earlier. Hmm. And so these the, the complexities in this space are many. And I will just share with you that that most of us that aren't on rules don't don't get too deeply into it. Um, some people do because they like to make you know they like to make motions and stuff on the floor to slow things down. You know, just like just like Salem. But that's the most of that happened early in the session. People were making motions all the time to adjourn or or recommit or do this or do that, and that's pretty much the people worn out because you have to vote each time. And so on, on these kinds of things, and just get to stay around a lot longer when you're busy getting everybody to vote. So, yeah, I'm sorry I'm taking so long on this answer, but it's a complex area, but extraordinarily important. You gave an example of people making motions on those amendments. Is that the votorama that we hear about from time to time? Well, kind of. The, the votorama... Um, Here's a good example. This week, I think we were supposed to have 26 suspension votes, and and the, and so if you if you're down on the floor as they're having the hearings on each bill, because you have your committee hearings, then the bill makes its way to the floor or to rules, and then rules decide how it's going to be managed, and it makes its way to the floor, and then and and they they do their argument, and then there's a vote. Now, when they do the vote, uh, if you're if 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 it's just a bill that everybody agrees upon, well, there's really no reason to send it to the floor for a, a a single vote. You could put all of those bills into a package and vote for one vote, and all of them go through. But there are certain members of the Freedom Caucus, for example, that think that that's inappropriate, and they they sent a member over to stand up each time and object uh, to uh, to the bill going going by voice vote. And 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 ask and they request then a a recorded vote and then that means the the bill instead of being added to a package of uh, in block and in block vote of maybe on ten or fifteen bills you'll vote individually on each bill uh, for a while during COVID and this it was a long while by the way at least a year and a couple of months each vote was separated by you know, started out by thirty minutes so you get one vote wait thirty minutes another vote thirty minutes and and that that's kind of the voterama that you're talking about. Now, fortunately, <clears throat> since COVID has kind of gone away, they've, they're gone, going back to a situation where it's an initial vote is supposed to be 15 minutes. It's more like 30 minutes while we wait for everybody to show up from their committee meetings, get to the floor. And then the rest of the votes are supposed to be five-minute votes. And so we, when you had 26 votes, you can imagine each one takes five minutes. You're going to be there a while. So they, they try to uh, spread those votes out. I have been there until the wee hours of the morning voting. And uh, for a long time, that was normal because of, um, sadly, the 30-minute the, the separation. But now that we're back to five-minute votes, and, and when we get in charge, if we do, we Republicans, you're going to see two-minute votes. Because you can do them in two minutes if everybody's on the floor. Uh, but uh, forgive me for digressing, but uh, during COVID, they set up a way of voting when you're, you know, absentee. So you could appoint a proxy, and then the proxy has to go up to the microphone, announce the, announce the entire situation, and ask permission to vote proxy. And you people line up way back up to the doors that we come through, uh, waiting to get to the be recognized. It takes forever. And so that's going to go away, and people won't be able to hide in, you know, wherever, uh, you know, California, and vote from California. Uh, that's going to change back to normal. Thank goodness. 
so that was a temporary thing, the idea of having a proxy so people could vote without being on the floor. And that, and that was, uh, the rationale was because of COVID, right? Otherwise, you have to be physically present to vote on the floor. That is correct. And, and that's gonna, we're going to go back to that. You know, the reason for that is that lots of games are played in that space. And one of the biggest games is you don't have to show up and be in Congress. You stay at home and, and, uh, and have somebody else vote for you. And that's not how this is supposed to work. How do you go talk to somebody face-to-face when they're in Florida or, or, or Minnesota or, you know, Maine and, and not showing up? Much of the conversation here happens on the floor because you're so busy running this way and that and the other. Uh, it's, I mean, there's 435 of us, and not counting those 100 senators. And so you're busy. When you're on the floor, you can run over and, and grab somebody and say, hey, you know about this or about that, and it's super valuable time. And so to have somebody in New York, that does not work. So anyway, I'm, I'm happy to say that that's going to go away. Brings up another thought for me. I always tell people that in Oregon, and again, this was prior to COVID. COVID kind of messed up everything because even though the building was technically open, it was still inaccessible and people were separated and taking committee from their office. So there was very little mingling of the two parties or even individual parties together. And But prior to that, I always told people that R's and D's, for the most part, only didn't get along when they were on camera and because we had breakfast together. We'd have lunch together. And so you built good relationships with the other party. What is that like at the, the federal level? Uh, do the R's and D's, when you're not on camera and fighting over whatever bill, are people building friendships and getting to know each other and spending time together? Or is it pretty much people stick to their own side? Well, it, it depends on who you are, I suppose. But the, for the most part, I've found most congressmen and women to be uh, very, very uh, normal and very, very friendly. The, the, it's kind of odd because after the January 6th votes, and I voted against counting the Pennsylvania votes, and uh, I did so because I, I viewed my uh, – constitutional duty to be to to object to the unconstitutional federal level activities going on there. The, many of Democrats took uh, umbrage at that and decided that they wouldn't talk to me as a result of that vote. And I say many, I have 20. Okay, so it's, it's not a huge number. Uh, but when I carried my first bill, and I was a sponsor of it, and it was a, it was a simple corrections bill, you know, filled with 40 pages of, you know, changing a V to A and that kind of, those kind of crazy things. Five Democrats voted against it because I had voted as I had on January 6th. And so, you know, <laughs> you have to say, oh, my goodness. But the good news is that seems to have, for the most part, disappeared. We now, I think most people are talking to us. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we may well be in the majority and it's difficult to get much done if you're in the minority if you're not going to talk to those who are in charge. It's interesting how much more people talk the closer the numbers are. I've definitely experienced that in Oregon. Yes. Having having yes. been, you know, a few different numbers there. Uh, speaking of numbers though, a few minutes ago you mentioned the Freedom Caucus. I can't imagine what it's like trying to hold a caucus meeting at the federal level with hundreds of people whereas at the state level you have 2 to 3 dozen depending on what party you're in. How does that work? Does the caucus ever get together as a whole? Or do you guys just, yeah, what do you do? 
Well, the caucuses meet all the time. Uh, the the Freedom Caucus, I'm not part of it, so I can't even tell you when they meet, where they meet, or how many people are members. I, I really don't know. I'm, I am not a member because they they require you to vote with them all all the time, even if, even if you should disagree with them. And so I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna approach my representation of my folks in that fashion. Uh, I'm a part of the Republican Study Group, however, um, and they're 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 excellent and um, they're they're big. It's it's a big number. I want to say it's 160, 170 of us are members of the of the Republican Study Committee, and it, we meet every Wednesday and uh, we try to meet for lunch, and it's um, it's generally a, a very well attended meeting. Although I've been unable to attend the last couple of meetings they had uh, greg norman he's a golfer there uh they had um the governors from different states there they've had um oh, I, I don't know if we've had jerome powell there yet but th- th- those are the kind of people that they have have it at that luncheon meeting and it's wonderful to have such access to i christy gnome i think was there uh, governor uh from uh south dakota and we had uh I, I could rattle on for quite a while, but but the bottom line is caucuses meet all the time. It, it, much of the time, your ability to attend is not because you don't want to attend; it's because you're doing something else. Uh, it's just uh, it's just one of those things. There's uh, about 40 members of the Freedom Caucus and, and about uh, 156 members of the Republican Study Committee. With all the different smaller caucuses, that compared to the Republican caucus as a whole or the Democrat caucus as a whole, does the entire, all members of the Republican Party or all the D's, you know, do they ever hold caucus as an entire unit together? And how do they strategize with that many people? Or do they strategize beyond leadership? Well, it's an excellent question. We, we meet as a, it's actually called a conference. Republican conference. It's always called caucus also because I'm used to it, but it's the Republican caucus. Uh, Liz Cheney was the leader of it until uh, the, her approach to, to political issues became different than ours. And so the, uh, Elise Stefanik is now the chairman of the conference, uh, the chairwoman. And the, the, we meet generally once a week and um, sometimes more often. It depends upon the nature of the issues appearing before us. And we've met as much as five times a week, um, once a day. We actually had a couple of meetings a day uh, in early January of of, of, year, of last year. Uh, so we all kinds of meetings. And and the way you, the, to your question about how in the world do you make decisions in a huge group of 100 and 213 of us, we all get into one room. They have microphones set up. You have one minute to go up and make the point. And um, and and everybody talks. And and many many times those discussions go for a long time, hours. And then at the end of it, when everybody finally wears out, we vote. And uh, that's how the most pressing of issues are addressed. And it's it's quite interesting. Leadership is running the meetings and making their positions known. And and, uh, and when it comes to most issues, when you're in the minority, as you well know, most of the time we're together because we're in opposition of those that that are in the majority. Now, I think that's going to change, and it's going to be terrifically interesting to me because I've spent 14 years, 12 in Oregon and two here now, (laughs) never a day in the majority. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to a change of uh, profile. I fear that I may never experience what it's like to be in the majority, given that I'm (laughs) bumping up at the end of my time in office. 
So, um, but but I will live vicariously through others on that. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Do you have any any final words of wisdom or major differences between the federal and state level that you want to highlight for people? Well, uh, what I would like to highlight is uh, my uh, ever uh, what um, increasing belief that we are extraordinarily fortunate to have this country and this form of government. And people tend to get all caught up in differences, forgetting that we have a framework that allows us to work those out rationally. If you were to watch the Judiciary Committee, you would think that there's nobody rational because there's a lot of yelling. But the truth of it is the the rules and the and the standards and, and the foundation for uh, our our country is is amazingly strong. And I, I would I would just say to those listening that they need to remember, we all need to remember how lucky we are to have this country and, and to have this structure that that uh, that I work with, that you work with in every day. And and it's super important that people remember that before they start yelling and shouting and carrying on as seems to be the case. My last thought, I, I, like I said, on judiciary, on the subcommittee, antitrust, and we got into huge discussions about about uh, blowing up big tech. And I would just say that, that social media has done an incredible disservice uh, to to how we how we thoughtfully approach things. Now, I'm, I'm all in favor of all the information we can get our hands on, but I sure wish we didn't didn't promote uh, outrage and invective and and and, and uh, all the kinds of you know uh, people talking about consequences. That's there's there's too many things at risk here, uh, Dwayne, and that we need to take seriously. And and one of them is the continued understanding of the value of our country. Thanks for listening. For more apolitical politics, check out apoliticalpolitics.org or dwaynestark.org.